You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 343 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined today by Seth Miller. How are you doing, Seth? It's been a day. It's, I'm it, excited to finish it. It's a, it's a Monday is when we're recording this. It's definitely felt like Monday. <laughs> and then some. Um, we got a little bit of follow-up about Porter from last week. We had a comment. On yeah, our, on our we got Twitter? a great a great comment from our, on our Twitter, and I actually think it's a genius. Someone said we were talking about the Porter Jets and how they're going to set up you know bases around uh, Canada to compete with Air Canada and WestJet and try to pick up some of the quote unquote permanent uh, decline in traffic that those airlines are going to deal with as a result of you know changes to their operations. And suggested that for the Montreal, instead of setting up shop at Trudeau Airport downtown or nearish downtown, that Porter should set up at Mirabelle. <laughs> And my first, con- my first thought was like, yeah, right. And I was like, ah, you know, it might be, you know, so crazy. It might just might work kind of situation. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I had, I had vague memories of, and Stephen, you confirmed for me uh, this evening as we're recording. They, they knocked down the terminal. Yeah, terminal's gone. So they could go like uh, super low cost carrier and load out of a shed. Yeah, I mean, they could, they could maybe they could rent some space from No Leaner or. One of those other like Northern Canada operations that operate out of Miraville. So, so what does Nolanor run passenger flights though? They do. Um, do they? Do they just run from like their own hangar? Yeah, it's from their like hangars. That's I took a flight out of their their hangar area. Um, is it be- is it like the small planes in t- in the U.S. where they don't require TSA? Yeah, there's no TSA. I think maybe or, we went right. to like a to like a metal detector. I think maybe. Okay. I, I don't even remember. But yeah, you just like parked and walked in, and then they just walked out of the plane. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, they, maybe they could rent that space <laughs> or something. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Nolan or No Line or whatever uh, has flights now in their new subsidiary going down into the Caribbean yeah. and stuff. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, uh, OWG. Off we go. I believe huh. is what they're naming it. But they painted a couple of their ancient 737s nice and new and put some streaming Wi-Fi like entertainment systems on board and are taking their 737-400s out for runs to the Caribbean. Hmm. I mean, the other problem with Mirabelle, right, is it is out there. Like, in yes. comparison to, to Trudeau, uh, it is it is way out there. And I think that was the failing of it originally. That's the, why it failed. No one wanted yeah. to go all the way out there. Um, I was reading something about the, the sort of decision and whatnot. And originally, the uh, Trudeau, which was Dorval, yep. I think, downtown was domestic only. And, like, planes would – Needed to, if you were going long haul, you needed, I don't, I don't know if they needed longer runway or what, but they were expected to go out of, maybe they were just trying to do a Dulles on it and force all the international long haul stuff out of downtown. Um, but eventually, right, they used, I feel like they used it for the Olympics in Montreal and they were like, well, this was a terrible idea and shut it down. Yeah. They never built a train out to it. There's like unfinished parts of the road out there. Um, there's a hotel that's abandoned. I actually stopped there when I was, when I flew out of Mirabel on my way back, I stopped at this like hotel and it's like, it used to have like a bridge to the terminal Ooh, like, over the roadway. And it, it's like a, it's like a, it's abandoned hotel. And this bridge now goes to nowhere. It's just like a bridge into nothing. Um, so, I mean, there is some like cool historical value, but uh, not so much for airport operation, airline, commercial passenger operations. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, now where the terminal sits, like you can see where the, the one, I guess it's like the ramp controller. It's, it's actually where, there's a uh, go-kart track. <laughs> so <laughs> moving faster than the planes. Yes, yes. So anyway, that's an interesting follow-up for sure. Yeah. Um someone also asked me or asked us on Twitter. I have to pull it up here. They asked us another question today. Uh let me find it. 
What about United sponsorship of the U.S. Olympics team? It seems that Delta is no longer part of that game. Ah, yes. We responded to that. Oh, we did. Well, maybe we, did. we should respond on the show as well. <laughs> uh, the uh, version I got from a United representative was that United is still the uh, sponsor for the 2020 Olympics. And so even though the 2020 Olympics are happening in 2021, United is still the sponsor. Gotcha. So it's technically a technicality. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a year old. Um, it should have, st- it should have stopped a year ago, but they're keeping it around because United didn't get its use of its sponsorship funding yet. And so gotcha. United gets to finish this one out. But, you know, as soon as the last flight comes home from Tokyo, it's done. Interesting. Okay. Um, new topics. United's 19 seat electric airplanes. I was, I was a little dumbfounded by this one, to be honest with you. So it's the third major United announcement in the last like six or eight weeks. We had the EV tall, the little electric helicopters thing that doesn't seem particularly real. Oh no, fourth. We had EV tall. We had boom, supersonic, which mm-hmm. also doesn't seem particularly real. We had the 737 Max and a 321 Neo order, 270 planes. Seems pretty real. And all the new interiors and everything else that goes with that from a few weeks ago. And then we got this, which is back to the not seeming so real to me. <laughs> and I don't think that electric is impossible. Um, I actually have a buddy in the UK who flew, piloted an electric plane today. Flew it for 45 minutes, tooled around a little bit. Um, I didn't get the chance to look at how many passengers it could take other than just him um, or him and the other pilot. I think it was because there's a second pilot because, you know, it was his first flight in one. Um, but it, it's it, I have to believe that, you know, the technology will continue to get better and all of those things. But like right now, the, the plane that United is talking about is a 19 seater with a range of 250 miles. And range of 250 miles can mean a lot of different things. But if we're assuming that's round trip range. Uh, and the plane probably can't get a new battery at the remote field. Mm-hmm. Either you need a like super supercharger or a very long layover, or your range is actually 125 miles, and then you got to take away for reserves and things like that. Yep. Uh, that significantly limits the utility of the plane. Yeah, in my opinion. I, yeah. I mean, I think you know a lot of people don't think about taxi and you know pushback and. Sure, like if there's any congestion, like that's I mean, and you could maybe you get one of those electric tugs that drags it right to the threshold. Mm-hmm. Right, and then peels off and comes back like on the uh access road, uses the yep. surface road so it doesn't actually you get in the way of the other airplanes. So I can solve that problem, sure. Let's let's pretend that that's real. Um it's pretty close, honestly. So let's say that that solves that problem. But you still need to figure out, you know, if there's a thunderstorm and you've got a circle for ten minutes, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Right, that impacts what, what, that impacts your return. Yeah, what's what's your reserve? Typical commercial aviation is a forty-five minute reserve right now, right? I mean, for fuel. So if you need a forty-five minute battery reserve, I don't know if this two hundred fifty miles includes that or not. Yeah. And even at two hundred fifty miles, you know, I I just wonder what the what the use case is, right? I mean, you talk about at two hundred fifty miles, there's, there's some airports that make sense. There are some like for me, two hundred fifty miles gets me almost from Portsmouth to Newark. I need a little more, but like, okay, that's, you go to a very small airport that's underserved and you can get back, you can get all the way to an actual hub as opposed to Portsmouth to Logan, which is like 60 or 58 miles or something like that. But no one's going to fly that because I-95 connects them very well. But they've, they've said that they're not going to put these planes at Newark, right? 
I they didn't say, but it seems unlikely they will based on them having comments about from the Airbus order and the Boeing order saying they, the re, one of the reasons they ordered the A three twenty one Neos is because they needed the largest plane they could get for San Francisco and Newark. Right, and like in their initial release about these nineteen seaters, they mentioned San Francisco to Modesto, I think, mm-hmm. um, which is a route that United used to fly actually until like twenty fourteen and stopped because it wasn't affordable and it wasn't it didn't make sense. And I like, I just wonder why you don't do the landline buses at that point. Mm-hmm. Run them four times a day. Get electric buses. They're going to cost less than electric planes. You don't have to worry about certification. You can carry a lot more people. Your operating cost, if you don't carry all those people, is still pretty low. Right. Also, a bus driver is cheaper to hire than a pilot. Um, so it's going to be a cheaper operating cost. I just, it's really hard for me to, and you, you reduce congestion, you can save slots for more useful things. Where in markets where roads also exist, and yes, there can be traffic and a breakdown and a tunnel and whatever, like congestion. Like, I get all those things. It's just, it's, and I get that airlines are airlines, not multimodal transportation companies. But in the big picture, I just I see multimodal opportunity and think, gosh, wouldn't that be better? Well, t- to be fair, I think this right here, these 19 seaters make more sense than the eVTOL. Yes, I absolutely will give you that. Like they if we're, have, if we're, they have real range. Yeah, if we're measuring the two, like the eVTOL makes the least amount of sense to me out of all yes. of this. Uh, uh, no, supersonic makes less sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. Okay. I'm, I'm talking about the, in the electric side. On the yes. electric side. Um, I think I think this makes more sense. Like I could see this being used out of Denver, right? Like to connect Denver to Colorado Springs or Denver to up in the mountains somewhere, you know, yeah. one of these more remote airports. I have to figure out if there's a operational penalty for, for altitude, for altitude of the mountains and stuff. But yes, I, I agree. And so like, right. Denver does have a lot of small mountain markets that it serves and other fun little areas. Those are places I think would make some sense. Um, now you'd have to get Denver to actually use all of their runways effectively to make this make sense. Cause then you could just use this one runway for these little planes. And not have well, any. So, <laughs> so, so can we go back to like the old, old version of Continental when it tried to bring the Q four hundreds into Newark and say they'll just use eleven twenty nine only, <laughs> and that I'm... won't snarl the airspace at all. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I and I also think like from a from a passenger perspective, this isn't going to be. This is like bringing back the Beach nineteen hundred. Yes, right. Like that's essentially what this is. Or the Ember 120. It's also like a 19-seater, right? Yeah, yeah. Or the 120, which were basically lawnmowers with wings. Now it's just an electric lawnmower with wings. Yes. <laughs> like, that's that's what we're getting. So it's the passenger experience on these things is not going to be amazing. It's going to be bare bones and probably loud. And because I think I, the, I don't think it'll be loud. You don't think so? I think it's going to be still be loud. There's going to be wind noise. You can't have a lot of insulation because it's that, that's equals weight. Uh and so you're going to just because it's an electric motor, I mean, I have an electric uh uh lawnmower? Lawn not lawnmower, uh weed eater. Thing is loud as hell. <laughs> so it's not I, like- I think yeah, and I, I see where you're coming from. I think the propeller noise will be about the same. There's less vibration. Mm. Or there should yeah. be less vibration. So, um that should be um, help, but I, I just I think like people are you know going to be oh it's an electric plane yeah it's it's basically a E one twenty so enjoy. <laughs> no, I, I like the idea of electric. I think I like the idea of anything that can actually reduce emissions. I also think it's really interesting to have just watched the uh, sort of debate establish U.S., Europe, and otherwise of is it going to be hydrogen? Is it going to be electric? What's going to be the solution for the industry? And mm-hmm. right now the U.S. is 
very much going towards electric or sustainable fuels, sustainable aviation fuels, right? And Europe, the European groups have gotten super aggressive on uh, hydrogen. Yeah, I mean, I could I can talk a little bit about that, right? Like, I mean, I, I don't know if I did I put it as a topic. Iceland Air supposedly is going to buy some hydrogen planes. I I, I didn't see that. Let me see. It's on the list. Uh, no, it's not on the list. Okay. Oh, it is. It is. It's the next topic. So that was a great. <laughs> oh that was goodness. a great. That was a great segue. Good job. Uh, I, what I was going to say was like, right? There's there's three types of hydrogen, right? There's what is it? There's green hydrogen, which is produced via basically solar green, wind. solar wind and the hydrogen's an offshoot or generated yeah. via that process. Um, there's blue hydrogen, which is it's a offshoot of some other process where they're just capturing the hydrogen. And then there's the process of I think I think they call it gray hydrogen, where it's it's basically being done using coal and natural gas and hmm. super efficient. Yeah, so it's it's not really the greatest. I think blue hydrogen, you know, is better, but the, the goal would be to have green hydrogen. I think that's what Europe is aiming for, right? Is like as yeah. much green hydrogen as they can. Um but at the same time, hydrogen's not like the most uh stable fuel out there. So there are definitely some concerns about that. <laughs> so what's Iceland Air going to do? Like, what's their uh, they've plan? got They've got a domestic fleet of props that fly, like, across the island. And so I think they're going to pick, pick – they've got a deal with Universal Hydrogen, which is – it's an interesting company. There's, like, a, uh, a company trying to build the drivetrain mm. um, and not build all the whole plane, but basically designing uh, – and it's a former former Airbus chief technology officer is the guy behind this. They're basically building the fuel cells and sort of trying to get the infrastructure up and running. He calls himself the Nespresso capsule of hydrogen. We're not going to build. We're not going to grow it. Right? They're not going to produce the hydrogen, and they're not mm-hmm. going to create the coffee maker or the engines that use it. But they want to be the guys creating the fuel cells and whatnot. Interesting. Um, and so they're trying to develop a conversion kit for short haul regional carriers um, with a Pratt and Whitney, Pratt and Whitney turboprops engines. Hmm. Um, Air Nostrum, which is a Spanish regional, uh, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, associated with Iberia. Uh, Raven Alaska, which also wants to buy 757s and may have taken far too much money in uh, PSP dollars yep. from the government, uh, wants to buy a handful of conversion kits for some of their Dash 8s, and uh, then Iceland Air is also talking about it for its regional fleet as well. Hmm. So I, I think it makes, you know, I, I think it might make more sense than electric. I mean, we've talked about electric in the past, and, like, you don't burn it off, so your plane stays heavy the whole time. Yeah. Um, and some other challenges with it. I also just, I don't know, I, I think back to the Boeing 787 battery issues. Mm-hmm. And that the solution to that was Boeing basically has or the FAA made Boeing redesign it. So it was like in a fireproof box. And if it melted through the fuselage, it would just fall out, but not destroy the rest of the fuselage. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like, that's what I remember from this. So yeah, like, if you do that, if you're, if your plane is, is how your plane's powered, it's a right. problem. <laughs> <laughs> you can't really just drop all of our fuel. Like that's literally dropping the fuel out while you're at altitude. Like, Hey folks, not we a become solution. a glider. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody see Gimli around here <laughs> that airport nearby? Um, if you don't know the story of Gimli glider, go look it up. G I M L I. It's a good one. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, and not to say hydrogen is necessarily better, but the peop- the uh, technology people I've heard talk about it mm-hmm. all seem to have come up with, if it's anything more than like a 30 to 60 minute flight, it's got to be hydrogen. Mm. And on some of the shortest stuff, maybe battery can work, but expecting it to go much further than that is probably not a great plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it'd be, it's it's fun to watch. Like people are, yeah. inno- people are innovating. They're trying new things. It's It's definitely fun to see. 
Keeps us busy. Yep. Um, MRJ, bringing back the CRJ 700 slash 550. What? What? So MRJ is Mitsubishi Regional Jet. They were trying to build their own super jet of some sort, which is the Sukhoi brand. I forget what they called it. Um, they were trying to build their own regional jet and actually got to where they were running flight tests, you know, a decade late and had them at Moses Lake in Washington and were running their planes and eventually was like sort of realized, you know, guys, we've sunk like eight or ten billion dollars into this and are nowhere closer or not close enough to having a production product. Maybe it's time we walk away. And sort of even pre-COVID had like started to ground the test planes. And then with COVID, just like done, essentially. <laughs> um, and actually started working on uh, – it was either carbon capture or power storage. I forget which. But some sort of far more useful technology for you know the overall industry and industrial evolution, revolution sort of world. So – but they also bought the Bombardier commercial jet business, which is the CRJ line. The Canada Air Regional Jets and mostly bought it because back when they thought they were going to have real planes to sell, they needed the support infrastructure that, uh, that Bombardier had. So you could take your Mitsubishi MRJ to any of the Bombardier, uh, uh, maintenance facilities, MRO facilities around the world and then have the spare parts. They'd have the trained technicians. They'd have all those resources available. And in the meantime, also anyone who owns a CRJ is still using those facilities. And so they'd have a little bit of cash flow while they're trying to figure it all out. And then COVID, yada, yada, yada. But the question now has become, do they bring back the – oh, sorry. Also part of all this is when Mitsubishi bought them, they announced that there was no more – like the backlog was essentially done. There were no more planes to sell and no one was buying them. So they were stopping production. <laughs> and so now the question has basically become, do they turn the factory back on and try to restart production selling the – CRJ 700, but probably trying to sell it as the 550, which is the United Airlines version that is the 50-seater on a 70-seat jet, uh, which has some operating cost challenges because, you know, or some chasm challenges because there's so many fewer seats. But also, United seemed to think would do really well in the revenue world because it's so many more premium seats. And at least for now, it turns out uh, premium revenue is actually turning – is doing pretty well. So Mitsubishi – who would buy the planes, I guess, from Mitsubishi in this case? Would it be United? Would United buy more of these? I, I don't think they would. Maybe. I, I, I would think probably not given where they are in the market, right? Like if I'm United, why wouldn't I take additional 700s that are just sitting out there collecting dust and make them into 550s at a, what's got to be a much cheaper price point? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, and I remember specifically asking this at the unveiling of the 550 in Chicago when United did a media day for it. I talked to the VP in charge and she was like, no, we own the intellectual property for this. And I said, would you consider licensing it like, you know, Virgin or Air New Zealand licensed Sky Couch? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other airlines. And her comment was maybe eventually, but right now we're really happy with the competitive advantage we have. And I'm paraphrasing there, but that was the gist I got from her. I yeah. forgot to pull up the original quote. So, so it's, not, it's not like they're like openly wanting to sell this to other carriers. Yeah. And like what other region in the world is probably looking at them besides the U.S. where scope clause and whatnot is such a big deal? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So it, it was an interesting story. Um, and who the hell knows? And does does that mean like would they, are they still using the Bombardier facilities to manufacture these? In theory, they would. They'd have. I mean, they'd have to like you know turn the circuit breaker back on. Yeah, but I mean that's that's where they are, right? Like that's where they're doing this. I, they're not. I'll, they haven't I'll, moved. Well, I don't think they. They're. I don't think they're actively doing anything yet. I think they're probably talking about could we get orders. Mm-hmm. But I think yes, they. I don't think they've moved the tooling or any of that. Interesting. Okay. So 
Mm-hmm. And I also, I don't know who the suppliers are and like, right. It's, you don't just suddenly start building airplanes. Like you got to get a whole lot of people lined up to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, yeah. what else we got? Delta. Speaking of plane orders, yes. ordered seven A350s and 29 739s. So leasing the 350s, formerly of LATAM. Uh, and these were ones that it was going to buy, and then it wasn't, and now it is, but or it's not buying them. But it was going to take them off the hands from LATAM, but instead, LATAM just rejected the lease in bankruptcy, and now Delta's taking them anyways, likely at a much lower cost. And then also the 29737900 ERs, they're actually buying 27 of them outright and leasing two, I believe, is what I read. So, okay. um, And those were supposedly former Lion Air. So bring them back from Asia. Um, they'll be very welcome in the, you know, very comfortable in the humidity in Atlanta. I'm sure they'll be used to it. Uh, <laughs> For the A350s, we're, I mean, demand is recovering, but it's not like international demands pick back up. So they're planning to fly these things domestically to Hawaii or what? That's a darn good question, isn't it? Um, yeah. I agree with you that the international demand is probably not back yet. Uh, they don't have them really in service until, let's say, Q1, Q2 of next year, even if they come on there. You know, they're, I think they're supposed to get them at the end of this year, but with configuration, right? They got to put D1 seats inside. They got to put the Wi Fi on top. Like, there's, they got to deltify them, if you yeah. will. So that takes a little bit of time. Um, they can sort of slow roll that if they need to, but. I think basically Delta's play there is if we can get the lease rates down enough, we can suck it up for a couple months or a year while we worry about filling the seats. Gotcha. Would be, it's sort of my understanding, right? We can run them for cargo, but also remember, right? Like Delta retired 18 triple sevens. It's got to backfill that. Um, so seven does not replace 17 or 18. And so even with the other A350 orders that are outstanding, this sort of bridges that gap a little better. And if you believe that Transatlantic is finally going to reopen at some point in the not-too-distant future, which I think is a topic later in the show, um, you're going to need to have some planes that can serve some of those trunk markets, right? I think as it starts to open back up, I think you're going to start to see more and more. I'm a little torn on this, actually, right? You, you'd, you'd think you're going to see more and more point-to-point flying, which would be mm-hmm. smaller planes. But I think there's still going to be decent demand for service-to-pay or service-to-Amsterdam for onward connections as connections get easier and the paperwork and testing regimen gets smoother for those markets, for those connections. Yeah. Which I think has to happen. I don't know when, but it has to at some point. Um, tell me about the BA 787 nose gear collapse. Oh my God. Did you read about this? This is hysterical. I, I read, I read some of it. Uh, okay. So mid June while waiting to run a cargo trip, pilots show up. Uh, oh, Hey, there's a maintenance problem with the plane. No problem. Let's just walk, you know, it's 45 minute delay. Let's go through the book. Let's clear it all up. Uh, next thing you know, the front of the plane is resting on the ground. The nose landing gear has collapsed. Oops. Uh, in many ways, the front door was ripped off because the stairs were still there. Uh, only minor injury for one person. Thank goodness. But, uh, the engine cowlings were damaged. The nose gear was damaged. The doors to the nose gear were damaged. Took a little bit of time to get that. Yeah. You know, it, it, it honestly is like that'll buff right out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is the example of where yeah. that's true, but someone had to get a big buffer out. Um, so the, uh, Canadian, uh, not Canadian, sorry, UK, uh, CAA, uh, or their Air Accident Investigation Board, uh, which is part of their aviation authority, did, uh, released, uh, early notes and findings. And the short, short version is that technicians were walking, when the pilots got on board, like, oh, there's a maintenance issue. And one of the things had to do with the nose gear. They had to, in order to clear the warning, they had to cycle the nose gear. And there's a process you follow when cycling the nose gear to clear the warning that involves putting in, like, the removal for flight pin. And so a couple of the technicians were like, oh, yeah, we got this. And they went out to put it in both the front and the rear gears. Um, and it's not exactly the removal for flight pin, but it's a similar concept. Um, and they 
the there were two technicians that went to put the one in the front gear. One of them was too short to reach the spot without a ladder and asked the other one to do it, and the other one put it in the wrong hole. <laughs> so this is this is literally the definition of you had one job. Yeah. Also, short, short version, and the short person may have been the one who screwed up. So I just it's it's amazing to me that like also if you're Boeing, well, how do you design a system that has two holes that are basically the same size adjacent to each other where one does such a critical function and one doesn't like make one square or something. I don't know. It just, so, which is funny because like there was actually, this is the second time it's happened and there's an airworthiness directive out that was issued in January, 2020 saying, put a plug in this hole in this other hole so that people don't do this anymore. But the airworthiness directive had a 36 month time to execute. And someone else in the halfway through, someone else did it again. <laughs> so a lot of human error, a lot of design error, right? There, there's all sorts of things going on there. But the, where, what it comes back to, to me, that's just hysterical is like the short person didn't want to get a ladder and, and, and ask someone else to do it who didn't ask know someone else to do it and like sort of looked. I was like, yeah, it looks right from here, but like <laughs> you couldn't see what they were actually doing. Oh man. So not I, want, I want to know what the fixes are going to cost. <laughs> in theory, that's public data. Yeah, because it's it's like an that's insurance it. report, right? Like, well, oh, you mean those fixes? I was thinking just what the uh, what the uh, airworthiness directive fixed oh, okay, to, yeah, to yeah. patch the hole. In theory, is if the FAA issued it, it always has to do a cost estimate of what what the number of hours and the cost of the hardware to do that sort of thing is. Mm, yep. Um, Canada. Let's talk about Canada. Oh, Canada! They are officially reopening to vaccinated Americans as with of the test. August. With a test as of August 9th. I wanted to throw that in later. Sorry. Yes. With the test. Um, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm a little annoyed by that part. Like, so you're not really open. Like, don't say you're open. It's you're open ish. Um, and you're only open to vaccinated travelers who then have to get a test. I got the shot. I got both of them. Why do I have to have my brain tickled? I'm going to get a better test for starters, but also. I have another friend, colleague who is double vaccinated and is sitting in Puerto Rico now dealing with COVID, tested positive. Is, so there is are she some actually, bra- she, there's some breakthrough cases. Does she actually have symptoms? Yes. Okay. But either way, you wouldn't want that person traveling. I, I so I, yeah, I mean everything we've seen though, right? Like, she is the outlier, like severe outlier. And and yes and no. So remember, like the. The official test numbers are like the like ninety nine percent effective or ninety five percent effective, whatever those numbers are, is against severe I- illness or death. It's not guaranteeing that you don't get COVID. It's guaranteeing that you're much less likely to die. Yeah, but so. it's also to get COVID. I think the numbers are something like ninety five percent. Still takes. I mean, that's that's. I don't know. That, yes. What's wild to me though, right, is there are people who desperately want to get back to the United States or Canada, and this is now possible but with caveats like I can't, I can't imagine the people in point roberts i'm, I'm sure they're desperate now now enough that they're they're just going to get tested because they want to go buy groceries yeah <laughs> so but it's it just seems it just seems strange i mean i was i was watching a, a youtuber the other day that came back from asia and to skip the mandatory quarantine in canada because he's a canadian citizen landed in the united states and then walked across the border yep like, or, there's a huge business for the taxi drivers in Burlington, Vermont, and Buffalo, New York, taking people to Montreal and Toronto, respectively. So it's like, okay, so your own citizens can skirt the rules, but screw Americans, is what you're saying. I can't go to the UK without quarantine, even though any, everybody who's NHS double-jabbed can, can travel from the US there. Yeah. Except they can't get into the US, so that's a different thing. But like, We're just, we're just, we're, I, everything is so convoluted. Yeah, the inconsistency makes it really hard. 
Um, and it, it goes back to what we were talking about, like on the post show, the bonus topics a few weeks ago. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, this is why travel internationally is such a pain right now because the rules are different. They're constantly changing. Um, like I think UK today said, you know, people can travel all over, but half the places that they can travel to aren't open to them. Yeah, so they they put Bulgaria on the green list last week, and Bulgaria immediately added the UK to its own red list. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, I almost can understand. I'm not, you know, looking at some of the numbers right now, like, caseloads are going back up, and the UK has a lot. Yeah. And it's younger people who are the ones who are more likely to travel, and then are going to be, I don't want to say irresponsible, but less likely to be wearing masks and social distancing and all of those things, having not been vaccinated yet. And there's a risk there. Yeah. I mean, you asked me the other day if, if I was, or today, actually, if I was going to go back for work uh, to Montreal, yeah. I'll honestly avoid it as much as I can. Cause I, I mean, I'm vaccinated. I just don't want to be tested every time I cross the border. Like I got to get as tested of right now. You got to get tested to come home. Ex- that's what I mean. Like, so two times a trip, like every week. Nah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I will say the tests I've had have always been front of the nose, like oh, okay. not a big deal, but it's still like, this was my St. Martin thing. Like. The trip was wonderful. I tell people, my trip to St. Martin was great. I had a wonderful time. I went scuba diving. I sat on the beach. I did the work that I had to do. I hiked to the top of the island. I had, you know, saw friends that I hadn't seen in years. It was wonderful. But at the end of the day, most of the story I'm going to tell is the pain in the ass of standing in lines at the airport and getting tested. Yeah. Which is a disservice to the travel and to the island and everything else. But like, it was a big part of what, you know, and it wasn't, it's a big part of the experience, even if it was a short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I got an answer for you on the uh, 787 pin. Okay. How much do you think a, what are we calling this thing? An apex pin inner bore insert. $20,000. $20,000. Oh, no, no, no. Only 1800 Oh. Yeah, I think it's not, I mean, it's it's obviously flight critical because it's on an airplane, but I think it's literally like a plastic plug that goes in a hole. So that you can't put something at the, above the wrong size in it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And two hours to do the work. So total cost per aircraft is $1,990. Hmm. And there are 73 airplanes of U.S. registry affected. Total cost on U.S. air operators, $145,000. Thank you, Mr. DOT, for that math. Drop, drop in the bucket. Compared to the uh, thing that came out today about all, almost all the Airbus fleets need a new NICAD battery for something. Because if they, when they were parked and getting disconnected and reconnected and disconnected and reconnected, the overall capacity dropped. Hmm. And it's like a $15 million replacement project because the battery is $8,000 each and there's 1,800 planes. Wow. And it's a five-hour replacement project. So, Well, then let's talk about the next topic. <laughs> Boeing 787 front pressure bulkhead rework is now required. Yeah, that's not good. I mean, should I not be getting on 787s? So, what I can't – and I, I haven't looked at it in enough detail. I don't know is, A, does this affect the older planes? Does it only affect – if it does affect older planes, does it only affect those that were assembled in Charleston or in uh, – Everett. Everett or both. But all the 787s now are coming out of Everett. So, or excuse me, coming out of Charleston. So, remember there was a whole deal mm-hmm. a while back about production quality. And I don't know the answer, but that is the first thing I think of that I probably should have done some more research for on before this episode. Boeing well, um, is just not having a good few years. No. And there were some 737 issues, too. Something else came up there, too. Like, it's on the maxes. Like, it's deliveries have slowed again. It's not great. Hmm. So... I don't know. This is one of those things like too big to fail, but also at what point does it become too screwed up to keep going the way it is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, how many times Atlantic? Can, oh, okay, sorry. So how many times can you replace the board of directors with other people that are basically the same as the current? <laughs> same as the old? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, boss, same as the old boss? Yeah, exactly. Um, Virgin Atlantic has reopened or they're going to reopen their lounges at JFK and London Heathrow. Both are open now. JFK opened oh. Monday morning. Wow. Um, 
it's interesting who's opening lounges and which ones and which ones aren't open. Yeah. So like Polaris lounges, right? Not open. No, no plan. surprise I, there to me. And I don't think they're going to open for a while, right? I think United has said maybe you need the demand. Year. You need the demand. You need the revenue to justify yeah. it. Yeah. So I think they said maybe end of year you'll start seeing like Newark and Chicago yeah. reopen. Um, but until then, not, no Polaris lounges. I, I think the part of that that, that kind of sucks is coming back into the country. You know, you used to have the United Clubs you could get a shower before connecting on. Can't really do that anymore because with Polaris lounges closed, there's nowhere to get a shower. Um, but does, that sucks. It's a small price to pay. Yeah. Does the I thought the C1 lounge upstairs had showers too. No? Uh, at Newark? Yeah. No. No? Okay. Not anymore, at least. Okay. I, maybe I'm misremembering. It's like, been a long uh, time. I so guess you can still use – I mean, as long as you come in on a morning flight, you can still – I don't even know if the arrivals lounge and SFO is open. I have to assume no. Yeah, I would have to as well. I mean, that was that was a gym building information. Yeah, they used to close it. They, like, tried to close it randomly even when business was good. Yeah, like, uh, it typically closed during the day at 12 o'clock. Yeah. So, if your arrival came in – so, if you were on, like, on the Taipei flight, you couldn't use it. But um, – but the thing yeah. there was you could actually go to your hotel or home. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what other lounges like Delta are the Delta One lounges? Like they're I don't think the Delta One. Well, they don't have special Delta One lounges. No, no. They Met- just use they just use their standard Sky Clubs. Yeah. Sky Clubs. But they did just reopen the they just did open the Fort Lauderdale lounge with hot food available, which is an interesting choice. Um, although as markets go, that one's got to be pretty busy these days. Um, there's American hasn't fully reopened flagships, right? I mean, like the pre- the ultra premium stuff mostly isn't coming back. The Virgin, this is the only lounge they have. And so business is going to start to pick up. They're ready for some of the traffic to start to return. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows when it actually happens, but they've obviously got some indication that people are flying more and buying the business class tickets. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I think that's that's a show. Um, we have Alitalia 2.0 for our Patreon subscribers. We're going to talk about that a little bit. <sighs> That's uh, going to be fun. Yes, it is. Um, so if you're not subscribed on Patreon, you can do that. You can join us uh, on there and get a little extra bonus content. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, at Dots Lines, more Dots, more Lines dot com. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to our new patrons, uh, Dushant and Mike B. Mm-hmm. Thanks for, for supporting us. And uh, to all our listeners, until next time, happy travels. Bye-bye.